from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Please turn in your pew Bibles to Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6, which can be found on page 63 in the Old Testament. Listen to God's word. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Second text is from the prophet Jeremiah, the 10th chapter, verses 6 through 10, can be found on page 668 in the Old Testament. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For that is your due among all the wise ones of the nations. And in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction given by idols is no better than wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the artisan and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is blue and purple. They are all the product of skilled workers. But the Lord is the true God. God is the living God and the everlasting King. At God's wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure God's indignation. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day uh, so that we would be changed, so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, uh, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. John Tetzel was a short, stocky, and bald Dominican friar in the 16th century. 
In January 1517, Tetzel was appointed to a high post by the Pope himself. He was to oversee the sale of indulgences throughout the land we now know or we now call to be Germany. Now, an indulgence was a guarantee. It was a guarantee that you could purchase, that you could buy from the church to reduce suffering or time in purgatory for the person who's purchasing it, or you could buy one on behalf of someone else. Essentially, Tetzel and his priestly colleagues were selling forgiveness. They were selling grace. They were selling a reduced measure of God's wrath and God's judgment upon them. A steady stream of pious customers were essential to the indulgence business, especially because the Pope had aspirations to build St. Peter's Cathedral with those funds. And so if that massive project were to come to be, then Tetzel had to sell, 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 and sell some more. On a more humorous note, legend has it that that Tetzel was in Leipzig when he came upon a nobleman who was interested in purchasing some indulgences. The nobleman asked Tetzel very earnestly, is it possible to purchase an indulgence for a sin that has yet to be committed? Tetzel responded with gleeful affirmation, why, yes, of course it's possible. You just have to pay the whole freight now. The nobleman paid for the indulgence for this future sin that would come, and Tetzel packed up his shop and began to leave the city. Just outside the city, the nobleman and his army met Tetzel. They beat him up and they robbed him, taking all the money he had earned. And and before the nobleman rode off, he said to Tetzel, this is the future sin to which I referred. Thank you very much. (laughs) Despite the... That encounter, Tetzel was not deterred. He had a job to do. And so he pressed on and eventually came to the border of Saxony. Now, Saxony was a territory in what we now call Germany. Germany didn't exist then. There were just municipalities, principalities. There were city-states in the region. And Saxony was one of them. And it was ruled by Frederick the Wise. And Frederick issued an injunction against Tetzel saying that he could not sell indulgences within his territory, within Saxony. And I wish I could tell you that Frederick was motivated by theological or moral reasons, but alas, he was not. You see, Frederick had collected over the years religious artifacts and relics in the city of Wittenberg. A pilgrim would come to Wittenberg They would pay a certain amount of money to gaze upon or perhaps even touch a particular relic in the hopes that they would have sacred power, that they would have some sort of healing power, or maybe maybe give them mercy, give them 
forgiveness. One historian notes that Frederick had collected over 17,000 artifacts, including, get this, a piece of Moses' burning bush. <laughs> Fabric from the cloth used to swaddle Jesus. 35 splinters from the cross of Christ. And on a more somber note, bones of the children who perished at the hands of Herod the Great at the time of Christ's birth. The total indulgence value of Frederick's collection was 127,799 years and 116 days of remission of suffering in purgatory. It was a precise market, a precise economy. Still, despite this injunction, Tetzel still came to the border of Saxony, and citizens from Wittenberg traveled outside of the bounds to purchase indulgences from Tetzel. While this greatly displeased Frederick the Wise for financial reasons, it also raised the ire of another priest, another professor, another pastor from Wittenberg. His name was Martin Luther. Two years earlier, Luther experienced a significant personal transformation. It was a transformation of both a spiritual and theological kind. In 1515, Luther was preparing his lectures on Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And he came upon Romans 1, 16 and 17, and it reads like this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Now, up until that point, Luther considered the idea of the righteousness of God. When he saw that phrase, when he would read it in the scriptures, the righteousness of God, he had a negative attribution toward it. He read it in punitive and judgmental terms. When he read the phrase righteousness of God, he imagined that this was the wrath of God, the anger of God directed toward hopeless sinners. He could not shake this interpretation. Now, part of this has something to do with his upbringing, living under the harsh rule of his father. And the whole notion and concept of God began to be shaped by his upbringing. God as one who punishes. God as one who exercises wrath. And the church's dominant interpretation of this, of course, gives rise to the indulgence system itself. That God, what God has for us, is punishment, and you need to escape it. This interpretation, the more Luther read Paul, the more dissatisfied he became with it. And he wanted to know if there was something he was missing. Is there something about this phrase, the righteousness that was revealed? Is it something different than God's wrath and anger toward us? 
You see, up until that point, the way in which Luther was taught to pastor, the way he was taught to preach was to say the only way you could escape God's wrath and God's anger was if you led a perfect life. And of course, no one leads a perfect life. And so that's why you need the church. That's why you need indulgences. That's why we need to sell you forgiveness because you are imperfect. But Luther has a transformation. He, he literally has a moment as he's reading this text where the righteousness of God no longer was bad news. Where the phrase, the righteousness of God, was actually good news because what it spoke of was the righteousness imputed to us, the righteousness given to us because of what Christ has done on the cross. This is what Luther wrote in his journal about that transformation. He said, I began to understand that the righteousness of God meant that righteousness by which the just person lives through God's gift, namely faith, not through something you buy or purchase, but as a gift, the gift of faith. This is what it means. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, he says, a passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the one who through faith is righteous shall live. Luther concludes, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Fast forward two years, 1517, and Luther's born again experience is now making itself known in the world. And he begins to preach, and he begins to speak, and he begins to teach against Tetzel and the sale of indulgences. He, in fact, implored all the bishops who were ministering in Saxony that they should forgo the sale of indulgences that it is heresy, that it's not what God intends. And on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago this very month, Luther posted on the Wittenberg Cathedral doors his 95 Thesis, or better known in its longer form, the 95 Thesis or Disputation on the Power of Indulgences. Here are just some. I'm not going to read all 95. Don't worry. I'm going to just read a handful of them. Number 32. Those who suppose that on account of their letters of indulgence, they are sure of salvation, will be eternally damned along with their teachers. Number 36. Every Christian who truly repents has full forgiveness both of punishment and guilt bestowed on them, even without letters of indulgence. 37, every true Christian, whether living or dead, has a share in all the benefits of Christ and Christ's church. For God has granted these. Hear that? For God has granted these, not the church. God has granted it so, even without letters of indulgences. 51, Christians should be taught that the Pope ought and would give his own substance to the poor from whom certain preachers of indulgences extract money, even if he had to sell St. Peter's Cathedral. 
Number 82. For example, why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love? For after all, he does release countless souls for the sake of money, contributed for the building of a cathedral. Luther went, as they say in the black church, from preaching to meddling. And when you start preaching against economic powers, when you start preaching against the idols of the age, you can bet that there will be a price on your head. And that's exactly what happened to Luther. That's for another day. But for now, let me elevate one of the most important theological points of the Reformation that emerges against the backdrop of Luther's response to the sale of indulgences. It is a theological conviction that continues to root our faith and life some five centuries later. It is the notion, it is the conviction that only God has the power to forgive that only God has the power to show mercy upon the sinner, that only God saves. The church does not save. The pope does not save. Tradition does not save. Our piety does not save. Our morality does not save. Our good works, they do not save. And certainly indulgences they don't save either. Only God saves. And here it is. The foundation of the Reformation. Only God saves because only God is God. Because only God is God. And so as we launch into this series, marking the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we do so by leaning into this idea that only God is God. This idea, though, is not new to the Reformers. They didn't invent this. This is buried deep within the theological and religious imagination of the people of God, the people we call Israel. We go to that ancient wisdom of the Old Testament. We, we go to texts like the one Kat read from the Torah, the, the law that was given to Moses, the very first of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. I am. No, no one else. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. No one else did that. God did that. Out of the house of slavery, God did that. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. The prophet Jeremiah does the same work here, framing it in chapter 10, verses 6 through 10. The writer makes it clear, there is none like God. Only God is God, says the writer, and the idols of wood, silver, and gold, linens of purple and blue, while beautiful and made by gifted and skilled artisans by their hands and by their wisdom, they still do not compare to God. The writer goes on to say that their wisdom is actually stupid and foolish when it is compared to the wisdom of God. They have no power to save these things. They are not like God, nor are they God. The Lord God is the true God, says Jeremiah, the living God, the everlasting King. And so the reformers begin to echo the language of the scriptures. And they begin to elevate this deep and profound theological grounding that God is 
God. But what they do with that is interesting. You know, so much of our uh, conversations about religion today are about the nuns and the religious, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S's, those who have no affiliation or will frame it in a way that says, those are people who believe and then there are atheists over here. The reformers didn't frame the conversation that way when it comes to faith. How they framed it was, it is a struggle between belief in God and belief in something else. Trust in God or trust in the idols of the age. It has always been about for the reformers and for the reformed church. Always been about belief. It's always been about faith. It's just where do you put your faith? Where do you put your trust? In the words of the great prophet Bob Dylan, everyone has to serve somebody. And that's what Calvin was saying. Everyone does. And the question of the gospel is who will you serve? Who will you give your life to? So if we want to understand Reformed theology, we have to understand this. God is God and nothing else. God is God and you're not. And I'm not. And nothing in the natural world and nothing we have created by our own initiative, our own hands, our own wisdom is either. Sin then in its most rudimentary form is valuing something or trusting something or worshiping something, even if it's a good thing, instead of trusting and worshiping God. So here's how I'd like to close. When we think about this struggle to live as if God is God, to live that way, to act that way, to love that way, to speak that way. We have to realize that that struggle does not end this side of eternity. Nobody graduates from this struggle. Nobody completes this course, right? Because there are days, right, where, where we know beyond a shadow of a doubt and we live as if it's so that God is God. I just want you to tap into a memory, whether it exists in your mind or deep within your heart, of a time when you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is God. That, that God would make a way when you thought there was no way. That God would save. That God would open something up. Think upon that. You know that. You may even can't describe it with your words, but you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is God. A couple weeks ago, I was visiting one of our youngest members who's actually here in the sanctuary this morning, my friend Jack. And Jack gave me permission to tell this story. Jack was battling a, an illness, uh, and he needed to be hospitalized for several days. It was touch and go for the first few of those days. And so I went to visit Jack on a Sunday afternoon after worship, brought him across, and as I walked in, I can't explain it other than with these words, God was in the room. I just, I felt it. I knew that in that moment, God was God. And I realized why that was afterwards. Because when Jack started talking to me about his faith, about how he knew that God was with him, that God would take care of him. And in his six-year-old simple eloquence about his faith, he spoke about how God is God. And I believed every word that he said. There are moments like that where you just know God is God. But then there are moments where it's not the case. There are moments where we, we struggle to believe that God 
is God. There are moments in our day-to-day lives when we forsake or ignore God's purposes or God's call on our lives. There are moments in our day when we live and act as if something else is God. There are moments in our day when we make idols of ourselves, when we make idols of our own power, of our own will, of our own determination. We make idols of our jobs. We make idols of our zip codes. We make idols of our portfolios, of our affiliations, of our prestige, of our popularity. We make idols of our race. We make idols of our religion. We make idols of our socioeconomic status. We make idols of information and technology. We make idols of intellect. We make idols of celebrities, and God help us, we make idols out of politicians. We make idols out of secular ideologies. We trust in things other than trusting in God. You know that to be true. I know it to be true in my own life. I can go from Jack's hospital room into the idolatry of my own life and back and forth in the span of one hour. That is the struggle of the gospel. And if the gospel does anything, it opens our consciousness up to that struggle, to the reality that God is God, and that every day, every day, we lean on the gifts of God, the gifts of faith, the gifts of grace to live and have the courage to speak and act as if God really is God. Amen. Friends, God is God. May we live and act and speak as if this is so. And may the peace of God, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. May his peace live inside of you this day and every day of your life. Amen.